for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Paul. <laughs> hi, Stuart. Hey, how you doing? Good. You guys are both here. I, w- I was worried that I was recording by myself again. So uh, this is Dr. Matthew Watto. As you as you heard, I'm with Paul and Stuart here. And Paul, did you want to remind the audience what we do on this show? Well, Paul would be telling us what the show's about, but his connection just cut out and it's late. So right. we're just going to get to it. So Stuart, what do we do on this show? Yeah, we're an internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice change knowledge. In the interest of full disclosure, we do tend to screw around for the first 10 to 15 minutes. So if uh, you do want to skip ahead, go ahead and be a lesser person for it in the words of uh, Paul Nelson Williams. For me, I- I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> That's nice of you. Paul, are you back? I'm back. Okay. Oh, he's back. So Stuart, Hi, Stuart just told the audience what we do on the show here. So I was wondering if you would uh, care to tell them about our guest tonight and maybe read her bio. Sure. Thank you for the invitation. And hopefully Stuart chastised him appropriately as my internet went out. He did. Um, great. Thank you. So we have, we're lucky enough to have with us Dr. Rebecca Birch um, to talk about headaches. Dr. Birch is a board-certified neurologist, and she's a headache medicine specialist at John R. Graham Headache Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also the director of the center's outpatient infusion program, and also the incoming headache fellowship director at the Graham Headache Center. She is the chair of the Migraine and Vascular Disease Special Interest Group of the American Headache Society, a member of the Women's Issues Special Interest Group, and a member of the Women's Leadership Steering Committee. She also serves as an associate editor of the journal Headache, where she has a special interest in systematic review methodology. She serves on the board of directors for the Headache Cooperative of New England and is the incoming educational director of the cooperative's annual winter conference. Her research interests include headache epidemiology, particularly the relationship between stroke and migraine with aura, as well as medication safety and migraine in women. This entire episode to record has been a headache. It really has. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know what? Fortunately, it was a wonderful episode. We talk a lot more about migraines. Uh, I wanted to remind the audience quickly that we did an episode on migraine headaches and headaches in general back, I think it was episode four, so I'll put it in the show notes. Definitely, you can check that one out. Uh, but the two episodes, uh, you can listen to them separately. Uh, you don't have to have heard the first one for this one to make any sense. We also, at the end of this episode, spend probably the last 15 minutes or so talking about these short-duration headaches, which include some of the hemicraniaceous syndrome, some of the more, uh, some of the weirder headache types that you probably don't see as often, but are very interesting to talk about. This was a wonderful discussion. Dr. Birch was a great guest. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. I already said my pun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first question traditionally is, can you give us a a one-liner to describe yourself the way that you would kind of describe a patient in the hospital? All right. So I am a 38-year-old clinician, educator, and researcher. I'm a mother of two young and very energetic children. And in my spare time, I garden, knit, fail to keep my house clean, uh, and I am currently working my way through the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the ultimate goal of understanding Infinity War. <laughs> hmm. That'll never happen, hence the name. 
seems to be a moving target, but good luck. So with it, trying to get through all the Marvel stuff at this point just seems like, are you watching the streaming shows? Like, where, where are you in your quest? No, uh, I, we had to set some boundaries. So we're just going, <laughs> <laughs> we're just going through the movies. And uh, I just finished Iron Man 3, but I will admit I did go out of order and see Black Panther when it came out. So I've already crossed that off the list. Smart move. What's the, what's the most memorable teaching moment that you had? Your, I, I guess your favorite failure. And what did you learn from it? So when I was a neurology resident, um, I was admitting a patient for status migranosis, and we were trying everything, you know, the repetitive DHE protocol that we usually do and um, all of that. And on the second day, I realized that I had forgotten to order her home amitriptyline, which she was on as her preventive um, when she came into the hospital. And I felt terrible about this. I felt like I had let the patient down. I had let um, her attending down as well. Um, And I was really kind of beating myself up about this. And then one of my friends said, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And what's important is what you do with them. And really emphasizing the importance of moving on, figuring out why it happened, and trying to make tomorrow a better day. And I think learning that attitude to acknowledge mistakes, but also to use them as teaching tools instead of letting them kind of eat you up has stood me in good stead, because unfortunately, we all make mistakes sometimes. I think that's the kind of thing you have to remind yourself over and over again, because uh, in my experience, uh, specifically with internists, uh, they tend to be very like, uh, uh, it attracts a lot of perfectionists. Maybe just that's medicine in general. And I think that sort of mistake is the kind of thing that really uh, gets gets under the skin of a perfectionist or a recovering perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I certainly have struggled <laughs> with this sort of thing. So that's why I'm, I can easily, <laughs> easily point it out. <laughs> right. And I guess that ties in with your, your interest in, in wellness too, because I feel like a lot of us have a tendency to just to internalize stuff like that and sort of rather and self-flagellate rather than actually sort of moving forward. So that's, it's, we've heard that advice before, but I think it's always great advice to listen to. Yeah. And uh, I think you were just referring to the fact that I'm the the chair of my department's wellness committee is um, in addition to all of the other work I do. And um, so much of what we focus on is trying to uh, improve kind of collegiality and support around events like this. I think reaching out to one another is really important as well. We had done a wellness episode way back when we started the show. I think it was one of our maybe first 10 or 15 episodes. And what I thought was interesting, like one of the main things that he had pointed out was that like kind of having more control over the work environment and systems related issues actually made the biggest, like move the needle the most in trying to improve wellness. It wasn't all just like something you can do within yourself, like read a book every night. It, it, It has to be you have to control the environment too, uh, because the environment can be so toxic that if it's not controlled, you're going to be, you're going to be burned out regardless. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, certainly the results from within, you know, our hospital and multiple other hospitals as well suggest that it's important to fix things on a systems level as well, that uh, the answer is not just to tell physicians to be more resilient within themselves. So I'd agree with that. Uh, guys, 
maybe maybe now is a good time before we move on. Just to, if anyone has any picks of the week, Paul or Stuart and and Rebecca, if you want to think of one, um, Paul's usually good for a pick of the week, so I'll buy you some time. But Paul, did you <laughs> did you have a pick? Yeah, I I, I thought of two. Even though I th- I feel like we haven't done this in a while. Um, I haven't. Currently on vacation, and so I'm actually having a chance to read something non-medical, and I'm very much enjoying the Chapo Guide to the Revolution, um, which is by the podcasters, the Chapo Trap House, which I'm sure you're you're huge fans of, especially Stuart, which is a Definitely. a comedy podcast that leans real, real far left, um, and they're just a bunch of young, probably too smart, too literate, extremely online people who discuss the politics of the day, and they've written a book that is a delight if your politics lean in that direction. And then you're getting a twofer since it came up. The Spider-Man video game that just came out is a pure delight. So if you've not seen it, if you've not had a chance to play, just even even just kind of flying around New York City. Well, I guess not really flying, swinging around New York City. It is just it is pure joy in video game form. So if you're a video game player, I could recommend that one too. My son was begging me to get that, and I said, "Wait." <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, did you want to give a pick of the week? Well, my favorite podcast of the moment, other than this one, of course, Thank is uh, More Perfect, which is a spinoff from Radiolab, and it's about the history of the Supreme Court, which seems very important um, right now, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Hmm. You know, I was going to recommend a book, but since since you're recommending podcasts, the, there's, this is a medical podcast, but it's, it's a lot different than ours. This is called The Peter Atia Drive. And this this is a guy who he practices in San Diego and treats a lot of people um, with, I, I imagine, high net worth individuals, high performing individuals. And he focuses on longevity and health span, N of one testing, ketogenic diets, all sorts of like kind of fringe stuff. But he, he's definitely very evidence driven and has lots of friends that are at universities. And I've really been enjoying that show. We've as long had as some people. Is an N of one. Yeah. Well, it's like, it means self-testing, you know. Um, Stuart, did you have a pick of the week before we get on to the show? Uh, yes. Sorry, my, uh, I must have hit the uh, the panic button on my car keys. All right. So my pick of the week <laughs> is a toss-up between either Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime or just a TENS unit. So both of which I've been enjoying for the past few days. Lay down at night, watch some Jack Ryan throw on a TENS unit at my feet, and it's amazing. Anyways, I, I thought the, the Jack Ryan series was pretty good. <laughs> All right, Paul. I think we should just start talking about headaches. Okay. We'll begin, as we always do, with a case. And this is a clinical case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. This is Ms. Emma Goldman. She's a 41-year-old female. She's got a past medical history significant for tobacco use, morbid obesity, and a reported history of, quote, migraines, um, self-described, but we don't have any corroborative evidence uh, in terms of diagnostic stuff. She's presenting for the establishment of primary care. So her biggest issue, of course, are her headaches. She's had the same type of headache for the past 15 years, and it usually affects the left side of her head, lasts for about 12 hours, and sometimes is associated with nausea. Um, They started once or twice a week initially, but have been occurring with greater frequency over the past couple of years. She's been taking naproxen 500 milligrams three times a day when she has the headaches, and then she occasionally pops a Fioraset that she prescribed by her last primary care doctor. Um, So I think before we get deep into the nitty-gritty, is there anything else, um, Rebecca, that you would need to know to better help characterize Ms. Goldman's headaches? 
Well, she's given us a lot of information that will help us confirm the diagnosis of migraine already. She's told us the duration of 12 hours, and according to the International Classification of Headache Disorders, migraine lasts from between 4 hours and 72 hours. And she told us that she has nausea, and the classification criteria require that a patient have either both photophobia and phonophobia, or nausea or vomiting as an associated feature of their headache. But in order to confirm a diagnosis of migraine, we need at least two of four pain characteristics. Those are unilaterality, which she has already confirmed, um, a throbbing or pounding quality to the pain, uh, severity of mild to, uh, I'm sorry, a severity of moderate uh, to severe, and then either worsening with activity or causing the person to avoid activity. So we really just need one more of those pain characteristics in order to confirm the diagnosis of migraine. But migraine is often complicated by medication overuse. And one of the things we don't have here is the frequency of headache that she's actually having. We heard that they were once or twice a week initially. So if we do the math, that would have worked out to somewhere between four and eight headaches per month. But if they've been increasing in frequency, it may be that she has crossed over to more than 15 headache days a month, at which point she would meet criteria for chronic migraine as compared to episodic, which is less than 15. I will point out that the classification uh, of headache is one of the few places in the world where chronic is a function of frequency and not of duration, but that is how it works. So chronic migraine is more than 15 days per month, and if someone has headache more than 15 days per month and is also using acute treatment very frequently, they may also qualify for medication overuse headache. So for something like naproxen alone, uh, the same would be true for something like acetaminophen, it's more than 15 days uh, per month. But if it's most of the other medications that we use for acute treatment, things like butalbital combination medications, of which um, furacet is one, triptans, ergots, opiates, it's 10 days a month or more to contribute to medication overuse headache. So it might help us to know a little bit more about her frequency of headache and her frequency of, um, of medication use. Rebecca, I just wanted to break in with kind of a troublemaker type question. So when I was when I was looking up medication overuse headache today, I found this article by Cher et al. from Neurology 2017, just like questioning, does medication overuse headache even exist? And does it, uh, you know, should we be trying to withdraw the medications from these people? Is that, was that article well received by the com- neurology community? And like, do, are people now questioning whether how we should be approach this and whether whether we should consider it a real diagnosis or is it just a a symptom of like poorly controlled headaches well, that was uh, a very thought-provoking article, and in the interest of full disclosure, I share an office with one of the co-authors, so um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I have heard a lot about this topic. Um, the headache community is very concerned about medication overuse as a, a topic, largely because most of the um, medications that are overused cause problems other than just medication overuse. So, for example, opiates are not an appropriate first-line treatment for management of migraine, and um, butalbital-containing medications can cause withdrawal issues if they're overused. So there are other safety reasons. Um, but 
as a general rule, the headache community does believe that medication overuse headache exists. Uh, the issue is that only about 50% of the people who have medication overuse and have headache will see their headaches improve once the overused medication is stopped. And we can't predict ahead of time which uh, 50% our patient is going to fall into. So it's always worth a trial of getting patients off of their overused acute medication, but I don't think it's reasonable to withhold other treatments such as prevention while we are in that process. Okay, thank you. That's, that's a good answer. And so normally, um, oh, and the other thing that I want to just point out from some of the terminology that, that you threw around there, we we did a headache episode, uh, it was episode number four, we went really a lot into this terminology and a lot of the basics of migraine. In this episode, of course, we're going to get a little bit more in depth and talk about other types of headaches as well. But what I remember from that, and I just wanted to say, think uh, I wanted to ask you if this is how you also would characterize it. When, when patients saying they're having a migraine headache... It, it has to be disabling, right? Like if they, because you, when you talked about the chronic, uh, chronic migraine versus episodic migraine, the, when someone says I have like 15 or 20 migraines a month, the, the type of headache that actually like knocks them out, does that ever occur that often? Isn't it like sort of chronic daily headache gets blended in? And can you kind of remind us how to un, uh, unhinge those term unhinge, uh, disentangle those two terms? Yeah, chronic daily headache is not a term that is recognized in the international classification of headache disorders. It's a term that many people still use because it makes intuitive sense. Um, patient has a headache, they have it most of the time. You know, chronic daily headache is a, a term that um, that sort of fits for that. But we try to classify it into chronic migraine, chronic tension type, or one of the other very frequent headache types, and uh, like new daily persistent headache or hemicranial continua. Um, and the difficulty, I think, and this is what you're getting at, is that as people who have more severe, less frequent migraines increase the frequency of their migraines, they can start to lose the severity. And then what you see is people who may have 10 or 15 headaches that look like tension type headache in a month, but then they also have a certain number of headaches that would meet criteria for migraine or are uh, aborted by a migraine-specific treatment like a triptan. And the um, diagnostic criteria for chronic migraine require that the patient have at least eight days a month that are either migraineous or are aborted by treatment with a migraine medication uh, and believed by the patient to be migraineous. But as a general rule, when a patient has headaches that do meet criteria for migraine, chances are very good that their less severe migraines are also fundamentally migraineous in pathophysiology. It's just that those headaches don't fully develop. So we call them, you know, a non-technical term, kind of baby migraines or um, a form frust of migraine, if we want to get fancy. Uh, I, we, we like to get fancy once in a while, <laughs> yeah, right, guys? Absolutely. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how often th there's conversion from episodic migraines into chronic or even the other way around? How often do chronic migraineurs uh, convert, hopefully, to episodic or, uh, yeah, so I guess that's my question. I'll stop there. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely can um, go in both directions, uh, which is a reassuring thing. Um, and we typically call that uh, transformed migraine when someone goes from high frequency episodic to um, chronic migraine. And I was trying to see if I could pull up the exact numbers for you on a presentation I have, but I can't find it ready to hand. It's about two and a half percent per year. Um, going in the direction of episodic migraine to chronic migraine and a little bit lower coming back in the other direction. And there are a number of risk factors that contribute to migraine chronification. And some of this gets into questions of lifestyle management and treating comorbidities and things like that. But risk factors for chronification include tobacco use, uh, obesity, depression, um, difficult sleep or uh, sleep apnea and uh, snoring, um, stressful life events, low socioeconomic status. There's a number of other things. And the factors that largely contribute to um, a transition back to episodic migraine include being on prevention, being compliant with uh, medication uh, and, and avoiding medication overuse. So a lot of the things we've already been talking about. So those would all kind of fall into the self self management of of migraine and some of the like non pharmacologic things someone can do. Is there a specific resource or handout that that you can point our audience to, or that maybe we can share with our audience uh, as part of our show notes? There are a lot of good educational materials out there. I generally point people in the direction of the American Headache Society website and the American Migraine Foundation websites, both of which have um, really good uh, patient pages that do a lot of education on this kind of thing. Paul, did you want to stick with this for uh, this part, first part of the case, or do you want to kind of move on to the second part of the case and then get more into the, the treatment and prevention stuff? Why don't why don't we move on since we already like you said covered some of the characterization okay. of migraines before the category? So why don't we move on to the next case? And did oh and before we do that, did you want to uh, talk hypothetically about strategies for if we do think someone has medication overuse, how that how we can sort of get them to another agent or what? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is to put a patient on preventive treatment. And there's a little bit of a difference between the way that Americans and Europeans treat and view and treat medication overuse headache. In Europe, they tend to emphasize withdrawal of the overused medication as the first line um, treatment approach. And in the U.S., uh, I think people just don't go for that as much. <laughs> so we tend to emphasize putting people on prevention. Uh, and it can be any migraine preventive. There's no evidence that one preventive works better for medication overuse headache than another. So it's very specific to the patient. And then we can do one of two things. We can either try and slowly withdraw the medication, set goals for the patient around medication use and meet with them frequently. If it's a prescribed medication, we try to get that prescription into our hands so that we can control it uh, and slowly lower it. So that's one approach. Uh, the other approach would be to do an abrupt or acute discontinuation of the overused mm -hmm. medication. It tends to produce a pretty significant rebound or withdrawal headache that can be managed with a steroid taper, with occipital nerve blocks, 
Um, and Jeez. to some degree, patients just kind of knowing that hopefully it will get better at some point. One thing to remember is that if we are going to discontinue an acute medication that's overused, if it's a butalbital combination medication that's being used at significant dosage, there is a risk of withdrawal seizure because butalbital is a barbiturate. So, um, phenobarbital taper can actually be used for that. Um, and sometimes we even have to bring people into the hospital. Uh, and then opioids, if opioids are overused, there are discontinuation syndromes um, for that as well. Sure. I, I was just thinking, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, occipital nerve blocks and a steroid taper. And to me, that like sounds like a threat like to the patient, like, if you don't <laughs> stop this, I'm going to have to do an occipital nerve block and a steroid taper. Uh, you know, if you keep overusing this medicine, uh, we're going to have to do that in order to get you off of it. Uh, that doesn't sound fun. Can, so can you just like, let's say someone is overusing acetaminophen. Can you, uh, when you're taking them off that, can you just use naproxen? Or some NSAID to uh, instead of instead of acetaminophen and, and kind of use that as your acute therapy while you're getting and and also probably start them on a prevention at the same time something like that is that a, a reasonable course? We're in a little bit of an evidence-free zone when we are trying to transition from one medication that can cause medication overuse to another medication that can cause medication overuse. I. Tend to feel like acetaminophen and NSAIDs are on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of causing medication overuse. So I would probably prefer that a patient take those as compared to a triptan or an ergot um, or certainly a butalbital containing medication. But there are some acute treatments that don't cause medication overuse headache, things like metoclopramide, um, hydroxazine can be used this way, oh, really? antihistamines. Yeah, we use a lot of hydroxazine for medication overuse headache. And this is uh, very much a personal practice that is off-label and um, not in the guidelines, but gabapentin can sometimes be helpful when used as an acute treatment in that way. And I know several neurologists who, who do that as well. Okay, awesome. Okay, Paul, now I think we should move on to the next part of the case here. Sure, well, new case, new patient. Um, this is Ms. Millie Whitcop, and I can't remember how I chose these names. She's a uh, 25-year-old female with a past history of depression with anxiety. She's been running up for her chronic health issues, among um, which are her migraine headaches. And these are usually preceded by a visual disturbance. So she describes a bright spot that's just lateral to the point of visual fixation. It grows in intensity for about half an hour, and then her migraine headache develops. And usually she'll just lay down until the headache passes, but the headaches have been happening at least once a week. And now she's starting to think about actual medication treatment. Um, or really treatment of any kind. So I think before we get too, too deep into the actual management, uh, I wonder if you could just help us through some of the terminology. Um, I, as an internist, I think I'm a little bit befuddled by things like complicated headaches and abdominal migraines and retinal migraines. And so if, if you wouldn't mind sort of teasing out the, the different terminologies for headaches that are preceded by this by, by types of auras, I think that would help us out a lot. Migraine aura is uh, one of the areas of medicine that has the most different historical terms, and many of them are easily conflated and um, often not entirely clear. So uh, I think the term complicated migraine is, is confusing to many people. Um, they're all words for migraine with aura, uh, aura being the neurologic event that happens typically before the migraine itself, lasting from between five to six 
60 minutes classically. Um, it often has a spreading kind of quality. It's visual in about 95% of people who get aura of any kind, but can also be sensory. It can be motor if uh, the diagnosis is hemiplegic migraine. Um, and the term complicated migraine is typically just used by people who recognize that there is some kind of neurologic symptom that goes along with the migraine and they don't know how to classify it further. So uh, complicated is not a technical term. It doesn't appear in the headache classification and complex doesn't either. Yeah. Complex was a historically used term um, compared to common uh, and common migraine was without aura and um, complex was was with aura. But that's now we use the terms migraine with aura and migraine without aura and then further specify the, the type of aura. So it's usually migraine with visual or sensory aura. Retinal migraine is an actual diagnosis. It's when there's cortical spreading depression, which is the underlying pathophysiology of migraine aura that happens in the retina itself. And what you will see is a migraine aura that is in the unilateral eye as opposed to the unilateral visual field, which is the normal uh, pattern for visual aura. And the other term that retinal migraine, by the way, is, is fairly rare. Um, the other term you will often hear is um, ophthalmic migraine. And that almost that almost always means the patient has migraine with visual aura. So that's a that's a pretty clear um, translation to make. Um, abdominal migraine tends to refer to patients who have abdominal pain or vomiting as part of their migraine syndrome, and it usually outweighs the headache itself. And it's much more common in children and adolescents. In, and in that population, the uh, abdominal symptoms may be cyclic in the kind of pattern that we would see with a migraine, but they never experience the actual headache. Um, and we do sometimes see this carry forward into adults where I, I have some patients who really don't get a lot of head pain, but they do get this kind of cyclic vomiting abdominal pain kind of syndrome and we treat it like migraine and it seems to respond to that. Did you want to ask about the hem hemiplegic migraine? Yeah, yeah. And I, if you could comment on hemiplegic and brainstem migraines, and then maybe we could just talk about the pathophysiology of migraines as part of this, or the, yeah, the pathophysiology is what I'm interested in as well. Hemiplegic migraine is one of the subtypes of migraine aura where there has to be exam-documented motor weakness as part of the aura. They have to have other migraine aura symptoms as well, so either the visual or the sensory findings, or uh, you can also have a, a, a speech aura, a dysphasic speech um, as part of an aura as well. So a hemiplegic migraine requires that plus exam-confirmed motor weakness, and it's generally generally recognized that hemiplegic migraine is a more severe phenotype of migraine with aura than the other forms that we've been talking about. And for that reason, there's been some concern in the past about treating those patients with triptans. Um, that's starting to go away a little bit as some case series, large case series are being published showing safety of triptans in people who have hemiplegic migraine. But uh, it is still on the books mm. that we generally try and avoid triptans for those patients. 
brainstem aura is kind of a tricky entity to think about um, because the idea is that the symptoms arise from structures that are in the brainstem. But when we really drill down, it's possible to have all of these symptoms come from the cortex itself. So, uh, you know, we don't really know what causes brainstem aura, but that's things like diplopia, um, vertigo, uh, trouble with swallowing, um, disorders of consciousness uh, that go along with the migraine aura. And that's also kind of a more severe phenotype. That sounds scary. Yeah, brainstem aura can definitely can definitely um, bother patients the first time it happens, and um, and it can also be hard to differentiate from other things as well. And then I think you wanted to talk about pathophysiology as well. Yeah, and maybe so I can tell you this is this is sort of what I've heard out there. Okay, migraine. There's some element of vasoconstriction. Triptans and ergots cause vasoconstriction. That's why you don't want to use them in anyone who has coronary ischemia. And that's why they think that aura supposedly has something to do with uh, vasoconstriction. So that's why you don't want to use triptans and ergots. That's sort of what's out there. So is that misinformation? Is there actually something else going on? Do we even know what's going on? We have a better idea than we used to. Um, this is an area of really active research in the migraine um, community, and thankfully there's there's a little more funding now than there used to be, but uh, this is historically an underfunded area of medicine, and so we don't know as much as we would like to. But uh, yes, the idea that migraine was a vascular disorder um, was the kind of dominant uh, theory for um, a long time, but over the last maybe eight years or so, 10 years or so, we've been learning a lot about the role of neurons and neuronal hypersensitivity in migraine pathophysiology. And we now think that although the vascular system is involved and you may see, you know, vasodilation as part of the migraine process, it's not necessary for a migraine um, to happen that vasodilation occurs. And the vasoconstriction may not be the thing that relieves the headache. So we now think of migraine as being a disorder of neuronal uh, uh, hypersensitivity. Um, And the genetics that we know about that contribute to migraine are things that all um, make various parts of the pain systems in the brain kind of more sensitive. Um, And we, we don't know enough about why that happens, how that happens, um, but but it is now thought of as as a neuronal process. And that would make sense why uh, anti-epileptics seem to work and gabapentin seems to work for prevention. Yeah, there was a, a really interesting study that was done. It was an animal study, but they were looking at cortical spreading depression, which is uh, the event that underlies migraine aura. Uh, it's a depolarization of the cortex, kind of similar to what happens during a seizure, except that it kind of slowly rolls over the surface of the cortex at about three to five millimeters per minute. And 
they treated these animals with a bunch of different classes of migraine preventives, and the one thing that they all had in common was that they reduced uh, the number of provoked cortical spreading depression. So however they're all working, they all do seem to end at the same place, which is to make the brain kind of less sensitive. That's, you know, a hand-wavy way of thinking about <laughs> it. But, um, <laughs> in, in, you know, for the lack, in, in the lack of better information about why these individuals things work. I think it's a decent shorthand. And in terms of how triptans work, um, it doesn't actually seem to be related to intracranial vasoconstriction. They act by preventing the release of um, nociceptive neurotransmitters from peripheral uh, pain neurons to the deeper pain structures in the brain. So when a migraine starts, there's a peripheral trigger, the first order neuron is activated, and then it kind of has to communicate that pain signal down to the brain stem and then up to the thalamus and then up to the cortex. And each of those relays uh, uses a number of neurotransmitters, including CGRP, which um, we'll be talking more about in a little bit. Um, and the triptans block release of those neurotransmitters. Going back to, to poor Ms. Whitcop, since I, I went to the trouble of choosing such an odd name. with the <laughs> Probably someone from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I imagine. I think she was maybe an anarchist. Cut that out if I'm wrong. Um, but <laughs> There's a syndrome. But, but give the presence, I guess, back to, back to our patient, does the presence of aura, you know, Matt asked about the triptans, but are there any other management considerations that aura would change how you would actually prophylax against this patient's migraines? Does that change anything for you at all? A little bit. So um, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if, if I had sort of implied this incorrectly or not, but it's fine to use triptans in migraine with visual aura, migraine with sensory aura, um, migraine with dysphasic aura or things like that. There's there's no contraindication to using triptans for, for that. It's only hemiplegic migraine and basal or migraine or uh, brainstem aura that, that we worry about it a little bit. People who have migraine with aura tend to respond to the same preventive treatment uh, strategies that people who have migraine without aura do. It's very interesting that this is actually not very well studied. When we look at the clinical trials of migraine preventives, we don't see the migraine with aura versus migraine without aura populations reported separately. So we don't actually have a lot of information about um, differential treatment response. So we typically try to use the same things. There are a couple of treatments that might be particularly good for migraine aura based on either sort of open label studies or clinical experience. Um, magnesium, just over the counter, 400 to 500 milligrams a day, seems to be useful for prevention of migraine aura. And it can also be used as an acute treatment if somebody is having a prolonged aura. And uh, the anti-epileptics may also be particularly helpful for aura, um, particularly lamotrigine, which is not all that helpful for the reducing the frequency of migraine itself, but for some reason it does seem to help with aura particularly. But in those patients who have migraine aura, we may also use things like topiramate, and um, that is one migraine subtype where a calcium channel blocker may also be particularly helpful, so something like verapamil. I see a lot of migraine cocktails used. Can you recommend to our audience what what would be a great migraine cocktail we can try out a patient that's in the hospital having a migraine headache? 
Well, the thing that I see used most often is a combination of an antiemetic like metoclopramide or one of the phenothiazine antiemetics, so promethazine or prochlorperazine, um, often with um, Benadryl and um, Toradol. Those are uh, that's a pretty common combination. But I think we should be thinking more in a urgent and emergency settings about using migraine-specific therapies. So if a patient hasn't taken a triptan or has, it's been a little while since they've had their triptan, try subcutaneous sumatriptan, particularly if they only had the oral at home. And I don't think that's used as much as it should be. If they haven't taken a triptan, the other thing to consider is dihydroergotamine. And I see that a lot of urgent care settings and a lot of emergency room settings are really going to opiates when I think they could more profitably be trying dihydroergotamine. Mm-hmm. Should we tell the audience not to be using tramadol for this indication? For yeah. Indication. <laughs> <laughs> I'll um, refer them to David Gerlink's uh, Toxin Hound article. <laughs> yeah, tramadol, like you know, any opiate, is not really a good idea um, for treatment of migraine. All of the opiates have the risk of causing central sensitization, hy- hypersensitivities that can then lower the threshold for having the next migraine and the uh, guidelines for uh, the efficacy of acute treatment also show that no opiates uh, are really all that effective for migraine anyway. So I tend not to recommend them. But because I am a person who doesn't love absolutes, I will say that, of course, there are patients in whom I use opiates. Um We all have that, you know, but these are people for whom, you know, one opiate a month keeps them out of the emergency room. And I think, you know, there are some rational uses for Mm. opiates, but um, the emergency room is probably not not the the place for them. Paul? (laughs) Yes, Stuart. Yeah, we got a lot in this case. Uh, I'm I'm just realizing through, but let me let me ask about Ms. Whitcop's sort of comorbid depression and anxiety. Does that would that change the way that you would actually um, would change the way you would manage her migraines? Yeah, this is an interesting case because she still seems to have uh, migraine only once a week or so. Many patients who have a history of depression and anxiety end up having headaches more frequently. And then it's often, uh, the anxiety can often become tied into treatment of their headaches, particularly the anticipatory anxiety of having a headache and not knowing whether it's going to go away. And uh, they often treat early. And then that can sometimes lead to medication overuse headache. And thankfully, she hasn't kind of fallen into that. Um, It is very much the case that depression and anxiety are both highly comorbid with migraine, and they seem to have a bi-directional relationship. So people who have migraine are more likely to have both depression and anxiety, and people who have depression and anxiety are more likely to have migraine. And the clinical implication of that is not to necessarily blame the migraines on depression or anxiety or vice versa, um, but that treating both of them together may very well help the patient's quality of life more than um, treating one of them alone and expecting the other to get better. It's also worth noting that um, there is a bit of a historical controversy about using some medications for depression along with the triptan medications Ah, for migraine. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Um, You read my mind. 
So, um, so SSRIs and SNRIs, uh, serotonergic medications commonly used for depression and sometimes for anxiety, there is a black box warning mm-hmm. on the co-prescription of those with the triptans because the triptans are active at serotonin receptors. Um, and there's this concern, this theoretical concern about serotonin syndrome. Um, there is actually no real good evidence base for serotonin syndrome as a byproduct of this co-prescription. And um, one of our former fellows actually went through the database that includes a number of the large Boston teaching hospitals and accrued many multiple thousands of patients who had been co-prescribed these two types of medications and really didn't find any evidence for serotonin syndrome. So we do use them together um, pretty comfortably. We always tell patients about the possibility of serotonin syndrome, but we really um, don't feel that SSRI use is a contraindication to triptans or the other way around. And this is potentially a case where you'd reach for like a TCA for prophylaxis um, over and above any of the other prophylactics or, or not necessarily? Well, it depends on whether her depression and anxiety are already treated. Um, there are two schools of thought about prevention of migraine in the presence of comorbidities. One is that you try and find a single treatment that will uh, kind of kill two birds with one stone, um, as the expression goes, and and try to treat both the migraine and the depression or the obesity or the insomnia or whatever it happens to be that they have. Um, and then there's another school of thought where it's likely that what's going to be required for each of those conditions is different. And so you should approach them separately. In this case, um, I may very well, depending on whether the depression seemed to be the real prominent driver for quality of life or whether it seemed to be something else, I might actually go straight for venlafaxine, which has level B evidence for efficacy in in prevention of migraine, according to the 2012 um, American Headache Society, American Academy of Neurology guidelines. Oh, I don't think it's one I ever think of or just sort of reach for out the gate. That's actually great to know. So I know when we're talking, particularly in the residency clinic, or I think just in general, whenever we're offering a patient oral contraceptives, and this is our, our 25-year-old patient, as a reminder, if if Ms. Woodcop was interested in, in contraceptives and was favoring oral contraceptives, is there any concern that we should have given the presence of her migraines and specifically the migraine with aura? Yeah, and we're covering a lot of areas, both of uh, kind of controversy and um, being at the edge of medical <laughs> knowledge today. <laughs> Happy to help. Um, yeah. that's seems to describe headaches. Um, so this is, this is a really hot topic, um, in the migraine community right now. And the reason it's such a hot topic is that there's a vacuum. There's no real good evidence to answer, um, this question. And in the, in a vacuum, everyone's going to rush in and, um, provide an opinion instead. And this is actually one of the areas that I'm currently working on trying to find some answers for in my own research. Um, So the original studies that were done in this area were done on combined hormonal contraceptives using ethanol estradiol doses of up to 50 micrograms, which is an enormous dose. And um, modern contraceptives, low-dose contraceptives may go as low as 20. um, And there are some um, versions that even have a lower uh, ethanol estradiol equivalent. 
And there's really no evidence about whether that dose increases the risk of stroke. So that's where we don't have any evidence. It is the case that for those higher dose um, ethanol estradiol containing contraceptives, the risk of stroke in women who have migraine with aura is about doubled by the presence of the contraceptive. Women who have migraine with aura are already at about twice the risk of having ischemic stroke compared to women who don't have migraine or who have migraine without aura. So aura itself doubles the risk of, of stroke and then the uh, high dose estrogen um, doubles the risk again. And for that reason, we recommend that women who have migraine with aura do not use estrogen containing um, contraceptives. The progesterone component is fine. Um, so progest progestogen only formulations, uh, there's no contraindication. This gets complicated because pregnancy also has a, a significantly increased risk of stroke. And there's also kind of a humanitarian issue. Um, and we're talking about relative risk here. So that's the sort of multiplying of the baseline risk of stroke in this population. But that baseline risk is low to begin with. These are young, relatively healthy, otherwise women. Uh, and so we may be multiplying this number by four, but it's a small number to start with and it sort of ends up as a small number. And there are also really good medical reasons for women to use contraceptives other than contraception. So things like endometriosis or premenstrual dysphoric disorder or, you know, a number of other things. And when you have a woman who has migraine with aura and one of those conditions, we really say that the use of a combined hormonal contraceptive needs to be individualized. And we don't try to put kind of a blanket statement for or against, but to say that every woman's going to have her own set of risk factors. Really what we need is more evidence and I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about, let's, let's say that our, our patient with migraine is now, we've tried her on some preventive therapy. It doesn't seem like it's, it's working that well for her. And she's asking about, oh, I heard about this new, this new CGRP medication. I heard about Botox. Should I be trying one of these things? How can we, as in, in the primary care, how can we counsel our patients about these therapies? So it's helpful to know a little bit about um, the criteria uh, under on the circumstances under which we might use onabotulinum toxin A uh, versus um, arenumab or um, the the new CGRP monoclonal antibody that was actually just approved last week is fremenezumab. Um, it's a very exciting time to be in migraine. We have all I'm, these treatments coming out everywhere. I'm impressed you know how to pronounce them, let alone <laughs> use them to treat patients. I it gives me a headache. <laughs> Um, so onabotulinum toxin A is FDA approved for the preventive treatment of chronic migraine only. Um, the trials for episodic migraine, and again, chronic migraine is 15 days a month or more, and episodic is less than 15 days a month. And the trials for episodic migraine were conclusively negative. They tried really hard, and there's just no statistically significant difference. So already we're looking at a split of less than 15 or more than 15 days. So for somebody who has chronic migraine and has failed um, a number of oral preventive medications, onabotulinum toxin A may be really good for them. Um, 
a lot of this is actually driven as so much of medicine is by the requirements of insurance companies because it's a relatively expensive treatment and insurance usually requires the patient to have tried and failed at least three and sometimes four oral preventives before they will approve. Um, uh, on a botulinum toxin A, and and we do sometimes get referrals to the headache clinic from primary care, uh, you know, of a patient who has never tried anything and is expecting to get approved. So it's useful to know that um, that's one of the requirements. The CGRP monoclonal antibodies are approved for both episodic and chronic migraine. So basically, there any frequency of migraine um, might qualify. The insurance coverage of that is still very much up in the air because they're so new. Arenumab was only approved, I think it was at the end of middle of May. Um, and so, you know, the, we're seeing some require that they, again, similar to onabotulinum toxin, have failed a number of medications, you know, whether that will change going forward, we have no idea. Um, but because of the long-term safety questions about the monoclonal, CGRP monoclonal antibodies, we tend to reserve them for patients who have tried and failed other um, oral preventive treatments anyway. Uh, you know, these are very new uh, to be released into the wild, you know, the general population. Um, and although we have clinical trial data, we don't really have that body of experience of how they perform um, in the real world. And so we don't feel comfortable just kind of prescribing them for everybody just yet. And it looked like from the clinical trials that I, I was just quickly trying to look at some of them, they were all versus placebo. They weren't they weren't necessarily they haven't tried them head to head against the other preventives. Is that true? Yes, that's true. None of the clinical trials included an active um, comparator arm. The um, Institute for Clinical Effectiveness Research, ICER, um, did a network meta-analysis comparing, particularly for chronic migraine, comparing um, arenumab and fremenezumab to uh, topiramate and onabotulinum toxin A. Um, and in, in the network meta-analysis, they all come out looking about the same. They, they all reduce headache days per month by about two or two and a half. Um, and of course, there's a great deal of individual variation within that average number. There are people who respond very well and people who respond um, not at all. But yeah, there's the, the migraine uh, evidence-based does really not include a lot of head-to-head -head trials. I guess the the natural wait, follow up. Wait, 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 wait. Yep, the, yep, yep. Go ahead and do it, sir. <laughs> I just have to say this. The migraine data does not include a lot of head to head trials. Okay. <laughs> Paul I love how Paul pretends not to like your humor, but he was totally on the same same yes. wavelength. <laughs> Absolutely was. Um like, that I'm gonna try to remember past. my question. Okay. Sorry, my man. question which my question is what does success look like with a preventive migraine therapy and how do you counsel patients when you're when you're starting something what what sort of expectations do you give them you know that's probably the most important question um and i'm really glad you asked it it's it is really important to talk about expectations of benefit from a treatment at the time that it started and you know we really wish that we could promise patients no headache as the result of a preventive treatment, but we can't at this point. Um, a positive 
trial of a preventive medication uh, is a 50% reduction in headache days, which means that if a patient starts at 30 and they go down to 15, we, we think we're on the right track. Um, we're, we're not going to stop trying. We'll definitely keep going by layering other preventives on top of that or increasing the dose or, or playing around with it in other ways, but we're certainly not going to call it a treatment failure if there's a 50% reduction. Um, we hope that a preventive treatment reduces the frequency of headache. We hope it reduces duration, maybe severity, uh, reduces the need for acute treatment. Uh, if there are acute acute treatments, hopefully they work a little bit better. And the net effect of all of that should be an improvement in the patient's overall quality of life. And there are absolutely patients who come in on a preventive and they're still having just as many headaches, but they're functional in a way they weren't before. And, you know, of course, my population in the headache clinic is um, pretty refractory. And so if a patient goes from missing six days of work a month to not missing any, if they have the same number of headaches, I'm still going to think that that's something worth working with. This might be a good time to ask about sort of non-pharmacologic management of migraines and how you counsel patients um, about that. Because I feel like that's an area where I certainly fall down a lot. Like it just, it seems sort of quicker and a little bit more immediately satisfying to start with the medication. But how do you counsel, like what behavioral modifications and what non-medication uh, treatments you suggest for patients who suffer from migraines? I think this is really important because it can foster a sense of self-efficacy in patients and an, and an internal locus of control, which we know is really important for people who have, um, well, chronic pain. I think chronic medical conditions yeah. in general, but particularly chronic pain. Um, but it's important in migraine to, to strike a balance between empowering patients to make their lives better but also not blaming them for headaches that they have. And I definitely think that can happen where there's a lot of lay literature about, for example, diets for migraine. And, you know, sometimes this can lead to people saying, well, did, you know, did you just eat the wrong thing or, or that kind of thing? And even with optimal lifestyle management, somebody who has migraines is still going to have an occasional migraine. So I do think, I do think this is really important, but there's a balance. So, if I could pick one lifestyle feature to fix for a patient who has headaches of any kind, really, it would be sleep. Um, adequate duration of sleep, good quality sleep, going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day because sometimes shifts in circadian rhythm can actually provoke headaches for some patients. Um, and then the second thing that I usually recommend is some kind of stress management tool, whether that's a meditation practice or using a relaxation app on the phone or um, yoga or some kind of other sort of meditative or mind-body practice. That There is some evidence to suggest that that can help to retrain uh, the sort of autonomic reactions to things in a way that that may help to to decrease migraine and and if there's a trained relaxation response, some patients are able to activate that as an acute treatment as well. Physical activity can be very important. Certainly, being sedentary is a risk factor for migraine chronification, but um, activity worsens a lot of people's migraines. So there's there's a balance between getting people out of the house and off the couch without um, setting them back. But certainly if a patient can exercise, it's a good thing. And in terms of diet, I tend to 
emphasize just eating healthy. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of nutrition science in general, but that's a, a different topic. <laughs> um, but a round table we might like to be part of later on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we can agree that probably super refined carbohydrates are not so great, and probably fruits and vegetables and and some amount of lean protein is probably good. <laughs> and that's that's what I tell my patients. Um, but I, I really don't emphasize uh, very restrictive diets. Um, and certainly there has not been a single diet that uh, has shown in the literature to be effective as a preventive strategy for all patients. Certainly if somebody gets a migraine every single time they eat something, they shouldn't eat that. You know, it's kind of like the old doctor, it hurts when I do this, don't do that joke. Um, <laughs> but, um, but other than that, uh, you know, I tend not to, not to really emphasize going, uh, digging for dietary triggers because it often causes a lot of anxiety as well in, in patients who have, um, who have frequent headache. We, we just did an episode on gout a couple weeks back and the, the, our host or our guest said the same exact thing. She, she said, yeah, the, the patient shaming and blaming that goes along with saying you ate the wrong things. That's why your gout flared. It, she was discouraging us from doing that too. So it's just interesting to see how all these things sort of all these, yeah, all these things kind of come back together and uh, have similar concepts underlying them. And in just in general, I think chronic pain conditions when you get the patient living a better lifestyle, maybe it just they just feel like they're taking control of things and it just seems like all chronic pain conditions get better when you do these basic things like take care of your body and your pain will get better, whether it's in your you know migraine headaches or uh, any sort of chronic pain. Well, we hope it does. Um, and and certainly, we think that gives patients the best chance of their pain improving. Um, you know, there are, there are people for whom what they need is for us to be with them in a journey that it often doesn't um, have a lot of improvement. And unfortunately, there are those patients in the headache world as well. But thankfully, it's relatively rare. And uh, I agree that the vast majority of, of people do really get better when there's some consistency in their, in their treatment plan and, their, um, and in their lifestyle management. All right, we're on to Bill Godwin, and I, I'm really I'm going to have to Wikipedia these names <laughs> after all done here. He's a 51-year-old male. He presents for the evaluation of a new headache that has been bothering him for several years. That doesn't make any sense. He describes a brief stabbing headache that affects the right side of his head. So he knows that his eyes tear up, and he sometimes has a runny nose, and he makes him wonder if he maybe has some sort of sinus issue. The attacks, when they happen, last about a minute and then resolve spontaneously. He has multiple attacks a day, and the... Intermittent headaches last for several days, and then he feels his usual self after his next attack. So basically, he has these periods where he's having these headaches that occur. They last for about a minute, they go away, then they flare back up again, and then these spells that seem to be concentrated for a couple of days, and then he's fine until he has the next attack, which can happen months later. And so before we get into poor Mr. Godwin, I'm wondering just how do you think about and how do you categorize sort of headaches of shorter duration as opposed to migraines, which we've been focusing on? Migraine by definition, has to be four hours or longer. And so whenever we as headache specialists hear that a headache is shorter than that, we often sort of perk up um, and, and pay attention in a, a slightly different way because they're uh, more rare, these headaches of short duration, and sometimes can present some 
diagnostic challenges. So one of the first things we want to know is uh, whether there are autonomic features accompanying the headache. And autonomic features include some of the symptoms that this patient has. So he has lacrimation and rhinorrhea, um, but we can also see uh, ptosis, um, meiosis, facial flushing, um, uh, redness of the eye as well, um, you know, erythema. Um, And all of these are uh, due to, um, you know, autonomic activation through the sphenopalatine ganglion. And these are the hallmarks of a family of medications called the trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, or um, it's abbreviated TAC, so we, we call them TACs. And the thing they all have in common is these accompanying autonomic features, but they have some other clinical characteristics in common as well, including unilaterality and typically a very severe and particularly stabbing kind of quality to the pain. And most classically, they're ocular or frontal in their location, although they can be in other places as well. They're almost never occipital, but um, but they can, for example, be temporal instead of ocular. So when we hear about a short headache with autonomic features, we're thinking the TAC family. But let's say he didn't have those um, autonomic features. There are some other headaches that are short duration. Um, some of them are uh primary headaches, so headaches that are not caused by anything else but are provoked by particular activities. So it doesn't sound like that's the case here, but we can see headaches of short duration provoked by coughing, um, provoked by exercise, um, sexual activity, things like that. And it's just worth asking the patient if anything has triggered these particular attacks to try and evoke one of one of those. If, the, if it's sleep that is provoking the headache, that might be a hypnic headache. Um, These are all in the the section of the classification called other primary headaches. And if you think you have one, you can actually just Google international classification of headache disorders and look for that section and see if it meets those criteria. Um, The other thing to consider is uh, trigeminal neuralgia, which uh, can be on the differential for um, a headache of of short duration. Neither trigeminal neuralgia nor um, those sort of provoked headaches or or a headache called primary stabbing headache um, should have those those autonomic features associated. So this headache, we're really looking at the tacks. And the tacks are distinguished by their duration and frequency. Everything else about them is more or less the same. Cluster headache is uh, from about 15 minutes to three hours and can happen um, from once every other day to eight times a day. And then the the middle one is paroxysmal hemicrania, which lasts from a, a number of seconds to a few minutes um, and, you know, can happen multiple times a day. And then the shortest but most frequent of them, it, the abbreviations are either sunked or suna. And I'm going to try and get this right. It's short-lasting unilateral neuralgia form pain, either with autonomic features for suna or um, um, conjunctival injection and tearing for sunked. Those are short, um, you know, kind of stabbing needle-like pains, um, but can happen many, 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 many times in a day. 
And the um, paroxysmal hemicrania, the one in the middle, responds well to indomethacin. Um, the other two, uh, cluster headache and sunctorsuna, typically do not. Cluster headache tends to respond best to verapamil and sunctorsuna to things like um, lamotrigine. So sometimes a treatment response can help you as well. The interesting thing about the TAC family is that there's a lot of kind of crossover and diagnostic sort of mishmash. And I think the story that we're hearing here um, in terms of, you know, lasting a minute and then having this uh, sort of um, circadian or rather circannual pattern where they're happening, you know, for some uh, time and then they recur another um, set of months later, that sort of reminds me more of cluster headache. So, Hard to tell exactly which tack this might be, um, but it's definitely in that family. Can I ask you a related question? When you were mentioning the other short headaches of short duration, the ones that uh, didn't have autonomic features, how come how come they always list like red flags? If someone has a migraine, like they say a red flag is if it's provoked by ex- headaches provoked by exercise or sexual intercourse. Why? Why is that a red flag? Do we do we automatically jump to imaging in those patients? I, I I was always wondering that when I'm reading about these headache syndromes. Any of the headaches in you know what what we call the kind of part four headaches because that's the section of the the classification that they're in. So these are the um, you know again hypnic headache, um, you know cough headache, exercise headache. Um, all of those require imaging before we decide that they're a primary headache. And just to review, you know, terminology, I'm kind of throwing around primary headache is a headache that arises of its own accord. It's not caused by some underlying pathology like, um, you know, vasculitis or intracranial neoplasm or a disorder of CSF pressure. Um, Secondary headache is a headache that is caused by one of those things. And that's what we're all worried about um, when we're asking about red flags is, is this a secondary headache? And absolutely, a headache provoked by exercise is very concerning for elevated intracranial pressure, either because of malignancy or because the patient has just, um, you know, intracranial idiopathic um, hypertension or um, or what's also called pseudotumor cerebri. So imaging is absolutely required for any of those and for, and for that matter, for the headaches with autonomic features as well, because those are very often, um, most of the time they're primary, but they can be a, a presentation of secondary headache as well. So you're t- we're talking about headaches. Uh, we're t- sorry, we're talking about imaging with these red flags. So my understanding is you generally want to get an MRI for these patients. Is it always with contrast and without, or can you just kind of tell us uh, on a more granular, granular level what, what you would order for these, for these patients if, if they come to us with these symptoms? I typically order an MRI without contrast for most of my patients. Um, MRI is strongly preferred to a CT of the head for a couple of reasons. One is that MRI just gives us a better look at the um, cerebellum and brainstem, so the posterior fossa, which is um, where a lot of things that cause secondary headache are located, and also because the cumulative radiation risk of multiple head CTs is not negligible, and because most of these headaches are lifelong conditions with episodes flares, these patients are vulnerable to getting um, a lot of testing. Um, so we prefer MRI and the to only times we would use contrast is if we're um, worried about, uh, you know, malignancy, 
uh, or if we are worried about uh, low CSF pressure, so intracranial hypotension um, sometimes shows um, dural enhancement uh, as one of the the findings, and and that can be helpful to save a save a patient some other workup. Um, and I mean anything else, you know, obviously where you would use contrast, but the the general screening um, MRI, no, we typically don't. The other thing to consider is when you would do vascular imaging um, or an MRA, uh, and for any patient with an exertional headache or a patient who has thunderclap onset, so a headache that just kind of comes on out of nowhere and is maximal from the beginning, we would order vascular imaging for that patient as well. And I, and I'm embarrassed. I I don't remember this super well from med school or whenever I learned it. When you're talking about symptoms of intracranial hypertension or hypotension, how do you differentiate them? I, I remember it as something to do with positioning and time of day. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, intracranial hypertension is a headache that tends to be worse with maneuvers that increase intracranial pressure. So Valsalva straining at the toilet, for example, or heavy lifting, um, coughing, sneezing, sometimes bending over, although that can make some people with migraine feel worse as well. And classically, those headaches are worse at night uh, or early in the morning when the patient first wakes up because they've just been lying down, and which increases intracranial pressure. And it's it's just the converse for intracranial hypotension. So a headache that is much better with lying down and is worse when standing up. So, uh, you know, the classic thing is a, you know, post-epidural headache is a low pressure headache. So if you've ever um, seen that or a patient with like a, you know, a spinal headache is the other thing they, they sometimes call this. So a patient who's had a spinal tap, um, I think many of us have seen patients who, who have, um, who have that. And those, Patients, again, feel better when they're lying down um, and other things that increase intracranial pressure actually make them feel better um, instead of worse. Wonderful. Thank you. And I, I think that'll be helpful to more than just me, but I know Paul is, <laughs> Paul won't admit it, but maybe he had that question too. I don't. No, are you putting that on me? Yeah, no, actually I had a, one more related question and then I, we should probably finish up, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I feel like when, when precepting specifically, I like blaming my residents for my own diagnostic issues. But when I have a patient who has comorbid, morbid obesity, and then also chronic headaches along with that, I feel like they always kind of throw idiopathic intracranial hypertension almost at the top of the differential a lot. Um, and I'm just wondering how, how often in practicality do you see that? Um, and then so what kind of lengths do you have to go to to actually make that diagnosis? Well, in terms of how commonly we see that, it, it does happen. I You know, I don't actually... I don't know off the top of my head what the prevalence is, and I, I don't actually think anybody's looked. Um, there are a lot of headache disorders for which we don't know um, the population prevalence. I think it's a good thing to have on the radar, um, but the vast majority of headaches that you're going to see in people with obesity are still going to be migraine. The So asking the questions about what provokes the headache um, is important and it's also really helpful to know how to do a good fundoscopic exam, um, which I know Ooh. is. I, yeah, we gotta. Uh, I gotta go. <laughs> I can see. I can see your face. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know. It's it's a little bit of a of a lost art, um, but it is really useful if there's a concern that a patient has intracranial um, hypertension. You know, the 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 um, fundus is the only part of the central nervous system that we can. 
when I was on uh, ophthalmology and they were dilating everyone's eyes, I like thought I was the man. I was looking in the back of everyone's eyes. And then when I went back to my internal medicine with no no dilated eyes, I'm just, you know, I, I see like, I if I see a vessel, I'm like, yay, I got, I saw something. I still do it. It's mostly performative just uh, to show off, you know, for students and stuff. And the patients feel better if you actually look like you're doing something serious, but it's a tough thing to do. I think every clinic really ought to have a panoptic. Um, you know, if if you're somebody who looks at this kind of thing, you know, then it it's much easier to see. And there may be other brands. I, I I'm not meaning to prefer one over the other, but that's that's sort of the one that I know. It gives a much broader and easier to look at view of of the fundus than a standard ophthalmoscope. But and that's that's what we use um, largely in our clinic. Um, but so fundoscopic exam, um, you know, showing papilledema or you know blurring of the disc margins is is a helpful um, marker. If you don't feel comfortable doing that and you have a high suspicion based on the clinical characteristics uh, of the headache for increased intracranial pressure, then it's worth getting somebody um, to look at the discs because it's, it's very rare. It's possible, but very rare to have increased, uh, increased intracranial pressure with a normal fundoscopic exam. I'll, I'll make good friends with the ophthalmologist at Cashlack Memorial, and we'll we'll get it taken care of. <laughs> Sounds well, good. We should we should probably ask you for some take home points. We've taken more of your time than uh, we initially asked you for, but I think it's been all great information, and our audience will be super thankful as we are. So, if you wanted to leave us with any any final pearls of wisdom, we are we are eternally grateful. The the main pearl I would say is that migraine is really hard for patients, um, particularly chronic migraine or people who've had severe migraine for a long time. And a lot of doctors don't believe them because it's hard to see, uh, you know, they don't have a broken leg and, and there's a lot of um, sort of suspicion that it's not as bad as they say it is, or, or people kind of don't like taking care of migraine. And so there's, you know, sort of this internal eye roll that happens. I can't tell you the number of times that I have an initial visit with somebody and I kind of do my thing. And at the end of it, they say, you're the first doctor who's ever actually listened to me. And I don't think that should happen. Um, I I don't, I don't think people should should have to get to me to be listened to. So I would issue a plea to um, to, to take the patient seriously and, and to really think about um, ways to help them. Uh, I would also just say that, again, migraine is relatively under-researched, but very common. It affects 38 million people in the United States, and we should all be um, pushing for research to, to match the prevalence and severity of, of the conditions um, out in the general population. Well, I think I think you've done at least, you know, this we have a lot of listeners for the show, so you've helped a lot of people hopefully with migraines by by doing this and and giving us so much of your time tonight. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for all your time and, and expertise. This was great. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
That's right. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, and contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We read every single email exclusively, print them out, and put them on our tack board and throw darts at them. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and goodbye. And thank you to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, and Chris the Chumanchu. 